We are Talent Savvy, and from the Netherlands, I'm your co-host, Bas van der Hatert. And my co-host today, from the West Coast of America, is the British-American industry veteran, Kelly Robinson. Welcome, Kelly. Oh, it's me. I am Kelly Robinson, and I am, uh, well, as you can hear from the accent, I'm originally from the UK, but I uh, reside and live in the West Coast of America. Uh, I've done so for a number of years. So um, I'm excited to be your co-host today, Buzz. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, uh, Kel. And I'm excited to be your co-host. <laughs> Thank you. Intelligence comes in many shapes and forms. Lifting weights regularly, for example, may make you more intelligent in the long term. But you don't care how strong my biceps are. You care about finding and recruiting strong talent. Intelligence Group specializes in gathering and analyzing European job market and recruitment data, serving corporate recruiters and intermediaries with innovative data-driven tooling and stronger reports. You don't need big biceps to crunch data to make strong business choices. You need Intelligence Group. Software vendors, staffing agencies and hiring companies need stronger data to find stronger talent and make stronger hires. You need Intelligence Group. Find out how to pump up your talent biceps at intelligence-group.nl. That's intelligence-group.nl. Hasta la vista, baby. So, let's get straight into the show, shall we? What's the uh, what's the news in Europe from your side this week? Well. One of the most interesting news items I saw passing through last week was that a Dutch company called Coolblue, which is basically the reason Amazon isn't really big in the Netherlands, it's a, a massive online retailer, actually cancelled. Stop, 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 stop. stop. That, explain that to me. Did you say Amazon are not big in the Netherlands? Amazon are not big in the Netherlands. We have wow. two local online retailers who basically have 80% market share, I guess, if you look at the massive stuff. So, so Am- have- Amazon is really small here. Do you think Amazon will buy them? I don't think so, no. I mean, the one is actually owned by Ahold, which is the biggest grocery retailer, one of the top five in the world, actually. So right. I don't think they're for sale. And the other one is now planning an IPO. If uh, Amazon would have wanted to buy them, they would have done by now. Fair enough. And it's, the, the reason I stopped you is because it's unusual, certainly from this side of the world, to hear somebody say, well, Amazon don't dominate in this market because we don't very often hear that. But anyway, I sidetracked yeah. you, your news. Cool Blue. <laughs> tell, tell me about your news for Cool Blue. So Cool Blue had an IPO scheduled. And last week, this week, they cancelled their IPO and they gave a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the most important reasons is that they're unable to give uh, good forecasts for the coming months, quarters, years, because of personnel shortages. Ah. As far as I know, never in the history of the stock market has an IPO been cancelled because of personnel shortages. Interesting. Certainly from where I sit, not hugely surprised to see that a company is suffering with skill shortage, experience shortage, people shortage. Um, It's absolutely prevalent here in the US. And I can give you some examples on that. 
but I've, you're right. I've never heard of an IPO. So, so companies. I mean, you think about the dollars. Oh, sorry, uh, euros that go into <laughs> funding, organising, and setting yourself up to become a public company, and then to put that on hold because of lack yeah. of people. That's that's unusual, and mainly a lack of basically warehouse workers. There's always been, and the Dutch market has been a tight labor market for ages. I mean, everybody's complaining about skill shortages for a long, long time, for, for over a decade, I think. And it's been more and less, but there have been skill shortages forever. And Cool Blue has always had a big attrition in their warehouses that's known, and they're known for underpaying and uh, uh, not the best uh, uh, work atmosphere. Although, interestingly enough, their headquarters is seen as one of the places to work. And I've been there. It's it's wonderful and it's gorgeous and it's, it's amazing. But if you also read the reviews on Glassdoor, the complaints about warehouse, working in a warehouse are pretty uh, uh, steep. And... They, but they've always been able to replenish them. And now for the first time, they're just not able to replenish their warehouse workers. So I have you ever worked in a warehouse? Um, have you ever experienced what that's like? No, I don't think so. Because I, I, I did for a year when finishing school. You know, those kind of like interesting uh, jobs you do just for uh, quote unquote beer money. I've, I've been a garbage man. Okay. okay. Refuse collector. <laughs> Uh, again, also impossible to hire in the US. But yeah, I've, I've worked in a warehouse for a company that had a an, an amazing head office. But the experience of the warehouse is, is very different. I mean, the one we worked in had no air conditioning. So in the summer, it was unbearable, you know, because it was one of these warehouses with a mezzanine floor. So I worked on the top floor and I was collecting people's orders and putting them into, you know, into a basket and a conveyor belt. I, I, I'm sure it's much more automated nowadays. Uh, but I can understand so during the pandemic and post-pandemic, has there been a lot of government support of people in the Netherlands? Have they had a, you know, have they had a salary to rely on from the government? They, they always had. Come to think of it, by the way, I have worked in a warehouse once, but it was a really, really small one. And literally the head office was next door. So right. it was one and the same. So it, uncomparable. But there has been a lot of government support, but not as much to the workers, but to the companies to keep the workers on a payroll. So where you in the US and the UK, you guys had furlough, which basically meant that the workers were not working for the company anymore. We simply paid the uh, companies 80 to 90% of salaries to keep them employed. Right. So whilst I've never heard of an IPO, and I'm going to do some research on that. I've never heard of an IPO being cancelled. I am not surprised that any company right now is struggling for, I don't know if you use the phrase blue collar workers, but, you know, workers in that in that realm to work in the warehouses. Um, it's very prevalent here in the US. You know, we have this whole thing going on called the Great Resignation, which seems to be, if you look at last month, I think it was 4 million Americans quit their job with seemingly no other places to go. They tend to be in the 30 to 45 range. One would argue they're probably at that stage where they're like just absolutely fed up with the company they work from, want to do something different. Or maybe the pandemic has made them value something they're much more interested in. And and there's definitely a surge in people doing gig work and, you know, starting small businesses, becoming self-employed. 
maybe we're transitioning here to a nation of shopkeepers. Who knows? Interestingly enough, by the way, that Dutch research is now showing we are actually seeing the exact opposite of the great resignation. We're seeing the great stay where you are period because apparently, you know, the, the full-time contract, the permanent contract in the Netherlands still has a lot of value on it. It's really difficult to fire somebody. And if you get fired, you get a big lump sum uh, uh, in order to be fired from your uh, employer. So with government aid for companies ending, we think people are very reluctant right now to move because they're afraid to get hired by companies who might be going bankrupt when government aid is over. And another interesting fact why people are reluctant to move or less inclined to move is that the entire work from home experience has given managers less time to demotivate them because they weren't seeing their managers that much. Okay, I can see that. I mean, I've always thought there was, you know, the reason why people weren't leaving their jobs up until, you know, this year was working from home, you know, removed two of the three things that used to drive the change. One was obviously the commute. You know, we've all done that, right? We've taken a job, the commute gets to you after a while, whether it's a train journey or a car journey. The second one is the team member that frustrates you or annoys you you know, because they sit there uh, picking their nose or whatever during the day and, and it upsets you. Or the other one is is the uh, the boss that's got unfair or unreasonable, you find it difficult to work with. They, You know, they're three kind of levers that get pulled to leave. And where people working from home, they didn't seem to have the same effect. So I thought the employee bases could be more solid. But certainly this year, since about April, it's been a consistent churn of people just quitting their jobs and saying, oh, I'm done with this, I want to do something new. Yeah, and, and, and I keep following the stories to see where that's going to take us and what the answers are. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see those great differences between the US and the UK in this place. And from uh, my perspective, the Netherlands, but I think most of continental Europe. And I think it might have to, something to do with the value, the, the legal value of a permanent contract. The Dutch and but also the Germans and the Belgium contracts are much more secure. It's much harder to fire someone. So the risk of moving is a lot higher than the risk of staying put. While in the US, it doesn't really matter that much if you move because you can be fired at any point anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, there there are a number of trends, right, leading towards this wanted to quit and, and do something else. One of them, and it's a stat that's brought to us from our friends over at ZipRecruiter. I, I don't know if they're in the Netherlands, but you know, a huge source of finding people here in the US and throughout Europe. So looking at one of their stats, they did some labor market insights for September. If you look at the number of people that work from home because of the coronavirus, it was nearly 40% in May, 2020. And it's gradually trending down. And now it's about 13.5% of people in August, September. And that trend line down coincides with the quote-unquote great regulation. And I think maybe people have just taken stock and said, actually, I don't enjoy this job no more. I'm going to go and do something that I'm passionate about and that I love. And yeah. um, and it's going to be an interesting interesting rebalancing as that goes forwards. Yeah, and what, what actually I th- what I've heard, but I don't know if... if um, I just from other American podcasts, is that a lot of people used the furlough time to 
get new skills to go on Udemy or Coursera or whatever and get some skill training, which they usually, because they're working their asses off, don't have time for, and now are actually upskilled and are able to do better paying jobs like designer or, I don't know, podcast editor, you name it. But at least that was one of the theories I heard from some economic podcasts I was listening to from the US. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange, it's a really strange market. So if you look at what we do now, and you know, little shame, shameless plug for, for Red Dot, we run recruitment-based advertising campaigns for our customers. You know, and obviously one of the things that's really important to us within that is what does it cost to acquire each lead or each interview or subsequently each hire? But the fascinating part for me is if you, I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the advertising numbers in the last, I don't know, couple of months have just gone through the roof. So historically, go all the way back to you know, 2002, right? There's been somewhere between three and five million jobs consistently advertised, right? You know, peaks at five, um, lows in the sort of two and a bit range, which is sort of around 2009, 2010, so we know why. But then it's consistently grown and it, you know, peaks at five or six million. As of last month, we hit 10 million jobs advertised, 10 million, almost 50% up on its previous peaks. And that just goes to show you the amount of money that's being dumped into the advertising market to try and solve this problem. So yeah. we're definitely feeling it over here, definitely feeling it. And yet what surprises me, but then let's, let's try to get also a bit to the educational point of this podcast and try to figure out if we can help our listeners solve some of the issues. One of the things which surprised me, I, I did a re review uh, last year of some of the bigger corporate American corporate career sites. So I asked around in, in some Facebook groups, like, who do you believe has the best corporate career sites? I got like 10 of them. And because I reviewed them here in the Netherlands and I have an award for them, I was like, well, I want to see how they compare to the Dutch websites. And I was so surprised that a lot of the things that we left behind years ago, which has proven to be uh, massive uh, conversion increases, like, for example, the register to apply buttons. I know we all know which ATSs deliver them, and either those ATSs in the Netherlands have been replaced or we build a workaround on them. And I've seen the numbers, and I've actually, um, I did some research recently with a, a British career site system called Attracts, and for all of the organizations where they replace the register to apply with just fill in the form, hit apply, and it goes into the system. And, you know, they basically build around the old ATS. They saw conversion increase. So based on the same number of visitors to your job descriptions by at least 55%, which was for a major engineering firm. You probably know them as their British SNC leveling construction firm and the rest of them were between 60 and actually the highest one was for a telecoms operator Vodafone who had 75% increase in applicants from the same advertising budget so sorry what did they do differently they removed the register to apply basically they now had an apply form 
you added your resume, you hit send, and you had applied. And before they had to register to apply, confirm that your email address is right, log in again, then apply. Yeah, I mean, I think it happens. I mean, we could probably make an entire series out of this subject alone. Well, first and foremost, you, you, you can't look at America and go, why does America do it this way? And we do it as a different way because it's not one size fits all there. Everything you've mentioned, I've seen over here. Unfortunately, the vast majority are built on a traditional apply process that's been used by ATSs where there is a, a, a bunch of forms to fill in and they've been designed around predominantly, and I'm, I'm sad to stay still having this conversation, they've been designed around predominantly somebody sitting at a computer, a laptop, and filling in a form, not really embracing the fact that in most cases, I would say in virtually all of the cases that I see, over 70% of the people that are looking at your jobs are doing it on a phone, okay? Yet the process is still geared up for, for a, a, a desktop, or a, or a laptop environment. But that, that was actually the second point I was going to make. The mobile experience was even worse, but also your laptop or your desktop experience is so candidate unfriendly. And what I've noticed is if you look at American sites, there is no lack of budget. If you look at the content which is on there, the videos, the way they're built, they are expensive. It just reeks of money. But then as soon as you going into the apply process there zero investment while if i look at especially the dutch and and I, I think we're ahead of the curve here a bit but as much money is spent in integrating your ats in a candidate friendly way into the career side as it is on the content actually i think we can learn content wise a lot from the americans you spend a lot more money on content Yet our process are more seam seamless. I mean, like I say, I don't think you can say one one you know one size fits all because I've seen some companies over here that do an amazing job and have got some really innovative ways that they engage with candidates that apply and they've fully embraced that kind of mobile experience. Unfortunately, it's a big country. There's lots of companies, and so you're probably going to find the run of the mill sites a lot easier because there's just more of them. I do think it's a problem that needs to be addressed. I think to any executive in a company, go and apply for your jobs. Go and take a look at your jobs, run through the application process and tell me if you think that's optimal. And then let's get the excuses out front, right? So I've spoke to many talent acquisition professionals that would love to make a change, but legal say they can't, compliance say they can't, diversity say they can't. So let's get those people in the room and let's say, well, what can we do? What, you know, how can we make this a better experience for the person? And for me, I think we should get rid of the word apply, right? I think that comes later on. The reality is, is that I, I see a classified ad on a, a, a job search engine of some description. And I go, I think I might be interested in working or taking that role on. And, and there should be some part there that says, I'm interested I'm not even applying. I'm, you don't need all my background information. Let's have a an engagement. Let's have a conversation to figure out if I might have the requisite background and you might be the type of organization that I'd like to spend my time with. And then, and then once we've got that out of the way, we can fill in all the forms we want. But right now we jump from the classified advert. The only way I'm ever going to find out more is to do a full application. Um, and we know statistically 
at least 60% of the people that get to those pages give up. They don't come back again. So there's, there's a lot to be said about making it just a little bit simpler. Two, two things on that. First of mm -hmm. all, I've actually did A-B testing with putting a second button next to the apply button, just saying I'm interested. And almost nobody hits the I'm interested button, but more people are hitting the apply button because all of a sudden, at least that's what psychologists tell me, you're now not giving them a yes, no, apply or not choice, but a, will I apply or will I show that I'm interested? So you're actually getting more people to apply by actually adding this button. Second thing, we had a local city, very small, actually very boring city here in the Netherlands, who have now said, let us make you enthusiastic about our city. So even before you apply, let's go for a walk. And they're simply taking interested candidates for, it used to be a coffee and then COVID hit. So they said, well, we, we, can't, we can't be inside right now, according to Dutch law. So let's just take you for half an hour walk through the city and just talk about what you want to do. Let's see if we can find you a job within the city be, even before you apply, which I thought was quite an interesting way to... That's a, a lovely idea. Could you imagine that you're applying for a job and says, hey, let's go for a little stroll and talk about what you've done in the past. And I mean, look, there's that scale to an enterprise customer that's trying to hire 300, 400 people a month. Probably not, but there's lessons to be learned from that, right? There's absolutely lessons to be learned. Absolutely. And again, I come back to the point, if you're an executive running a company, go and apply for your jobs. You know, recruitment is going to be in one of your top five issues to deal with, certainly this year and probably next year, uh, because you either can't get people or you're getting too many of them and they're underqualified or they're not eligible to work in this country. Go and apply for your jobs, see the experience, make it a priority to to improve these things. Because there's, there's, we know, as we've seen it, there's technology out there, there's processes, there's people that can guide you through making a significant improvement to what it's like as a candidate engaging with your company. But it's got to start from the top. It's got to be a priority from the top. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be. And what, what, what other things might work? Because we, we these weekends, last weekend, next weekend again, one of our major uh, pharmacy retailers are also scrambling to find warehouse workers. So what they've now done is say, listen, we have an open house. Come to our warehouse. On a Saturday between, I think, 10 and 4, we'll show you around, we'll tell you what the job is, and if you say you want it, it's yours. There's no interview process, There's not, because everybody can be a warehouse worker. The only thing you need to be able to do is lift like 4 kilos or 5 kilos, if I'm not mistaken. You know, you need to pick up a box. Yep. So it's an open hiring process. There's no chance of being rejected, no chance of rejection. The only person who can reject anybody is you as a candidate. You can reject us after we've shown you what the job is like and how much it's going to pay. And to my surprise, in the US, they're still doing, for example, background checks on people working in warehouses. And I'm like, for what? Yeah, I think that's, a, that, that's actually, I mean, the whole thing about background checks and there's some, we know some experts in this space, so that might be a good thing, a good topic to kind of unpack with an expert at some point in the future because it isn't interesting we're a nation that tries to give people a second chance we love the story of somebody that's hit rock bottom and rebuilt themselves right it's a it's a compelling story if you listen to a lot of the the podcasts they're the most popular interview types of stories for those people that have crashed burned and come back yet for some standard corporate jobs we rule people out because of a mistake they made 
at some point in their career. I would love us to bring somebody on that lives in this world to actually unpack that for the audiences in Europe and, and here in the US, actually. What thought-provoking things can we come up with to make a change? What do you reckon? Yeah, we should. We should definitely. It's, it, for me, it also it's also about relevance because in the US, you can screen people out on stuff which aren't relevant for the job. In the Netherlands, we've got a system where it's actually you're not allowed to ask any of those things. You're allowed to ask somebody to provide you with a declaration of no objection, which has to be given out by your, his local government or her local government. And basically, you have to state what are the what's the job like? You know, what are you going to do? And based on that, if a person is convicted of something, they'll look if it it's relevant for the job you're going to do. So for a kindergarten teacher, if you had basically uh, uh, sex crimes with children on your criminal record, you're not going to get a no objection. If you've been convicted of drunk driving, you're not going to get a declaration of no objection for a cab driver. Yet, if you had a declaration for drunk, uh, uh, if you've been drunk driving, there's no reason you can't be a kindergarten teacher. So, and that system actually does protect the employers and especially the people, the clients of those employers, but doesn't exclude you for completely irrelevant behavior. Right, but there's nuances even with that, isn't there? So, I mean, you know, we all know the case of the person that went out drinking the night before and then got up in the morning and drove to work and then lost their license because they were still over limit from the night before. I'm not saying you want them as your cab driver, but my point is is that there's a nuance there, right? Does that do you feel that constitutes the same crime as somebody that deliberately came out of a pub and got in a car? Because I suspect most of us that have drunk at some point have got in the car in the morning and if our blood was tested, we may or may not have been you know, we may have margin been over the limit. Well yeah, no it, I mean you guys all ride bikes though, right? So are there, do you have the same issue with bike riding? Yeah, no, but but no, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, and of course, uh, soft drugs have been legal in the Netherlands for a long time. So, and and we've never made a problem out and, of that. And and same in California, and and it's raising billions of dollars of tax revenue. So I, I am sure it's going to be the same everywhere at some point. Yeah, no, we we're actually still losing money on it, because, but that's that's the way we, of course, organize it again. The Dutch are really terrible at that. But no, but it's it's. The declaration of no objection is very rarely not given. It's it's right. Okay, it's very very rarely not given. So you really need to have a massive conviction, which is very relevant, in order for it to be withdrawn. I mean, if you've been convicted for child abuse, you won't get it to become a teacher. Okay, quite rightly so. Yeah. So go- going back to the start of this conversation where we was talking about the candidate apply process again i think we could feel a lot of time discussing this but for for me i'm going to give you one takeaway perhaps you could as well my my takeaway is if you're an executive running a business and, and recruitment is going to be in your top five things to look at over the next two years by default it has to be by the way of what's going on in the market then please, please, please go and apply for some of your jobs, experience it, taste it, and then put the investment in or put the effort in to change things for the better to support your talent acquisition teams 
and to support candidates applying for your companies. What would be your takeaway on that subject? I absolutely agree with what you just said. And stop treating talent acquisition as a cost center and start with actually investing in improving talent acquisition. And the one thing what I've noticed from a lot of my clients is there's a lot of investment going into people. It's really easy to hire a new recruiter, yet the investment in technology to actually make those people work really efficiently is really lacking. So start looking at how can we empower, how can we augment our recruiters, how can we take away a lot of the administrative work, but also how can we optimize for better conversion and better talent acquisition. Start using the technology out there. There you go. Sounds like a plan to me. All right. And on that note, this was the very first Talent Savvy podcast. Thank you for joining me, Kel. It was, and I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Enjoy your evening.